morning, this week, we're going to turn our attention to the New Testament as we examine the book of Philemon together, alternatively pronounced Philemon, Philemon, all sorts of crazy pronunciations. Philemon is the shortest of Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 epistles, almost half of the New Testament. This is his shortest letter. It's just 335 words in the original Greek. Philemon is the only letter in which Paul does not explicitly spell out the gospel for us, the all-important saving good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the place of us sinners. Why doesn't he share it? Well, I'm going to argue this morning that the reason Paul omits the gospel here is because he is instead offering us a living illustration of the gospel in real life, on display, in 3D, three-dimensional, we might say. Elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, in Romans chapter 6, Paul explains the gospel in this way. He says that once you were slaves to sin, but now through Christ Jesus, you have been adopted into God's very own family. And that is the gospel that is being played out for us in 3D in the book of Philemon, as we will see. And the big message of this little book that Paul wants to impress upon us this morning is simply this. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. We have all had those moments in our lives, those life-changing events in our past when time seemed to stand still as you realized this changes everything. I'm too young to remember it, but I've, my mom has a hilarious photo of me when I was two and a half years old holding my baby sister for the first time in the hospital, and my face says it all. This changes everything. Like I'm not the center of the universe anymore. I can still remember personally sitting in my dad's brand new Hunter Green 1997 Toyota 4Runner in the parking lot of Union University as he explained to me and my sister that he no longer loved my mom and that he was leaving our family. He had fallen in love with someone else. This changes everything. We're standing at the altar watching Polly walk down the aisle, standing in the hospital room eight years later watching our daughter emerge from her or just one year ago this next week, signing the papers to legally adopt my son. And all of these moments, that same thrilling, terrifying realization slowly washing over me, this changes everything. But from an eternal perspective, all of those moments pale in comparison to the one when I stood on the banks of Lake Maxincucky in Culver, Indiana, listening to a friend simply share with me the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he had done for me. The same gospel that I had professed faith in two, two decades prior, the gospel that I had been paid to preach to high school students for the past five years at that point, and finally realizing that I had never actually repented of my own sins. I had never personally surrendered my own life, never trusted in Jesus as my own Lord and Savior and given my life to him and finally recognizing how desperately I needed to feeling that same feeling of excitement but fear as I realized this changes everything. 
because friends, you and I are so sinful and Jesus is so perfect that he cannot help but turn our entire worlds upside down when he comes into our lives and praise God for it. He changes everything for the better. And this morning we get a vivid 3D biblical picture of that truth in the lives of three men. The Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, Philemon, his addressee, the guy to whom Paul is writing, and most of all, Onesimus, Philemon's slave-turned-brother in Christ. And we're going to see how the gospel changed everything for all three of these men and how it ought to touch and transform every nook and cranny of your life as well. And so would you stand with me as you're able as we read together the entire book of Philemon. Don't worry, it's just 25 verses. So good, so important. Would you hear the word of the Lord this morning? Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you 
and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you indeed this morning for your word, for this little book with such a big message, the message of the gospel in 3D put on display before us this morning. The truth that the gospel has the power to change everything. Father, I pray this morning that you might open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive to experience and to be changed, to be transformed by that same power of the gospel, same gospel that could reconcile Paul to you, could reconcile Onesimus to Philemon, that you might, by that same gospel power, reconcile us this morning. That if there is any sinner here this morning who has not yet tasted and personally experienced the transformative power of the gospel to change everything for the better in their life, that you would do it again this morning. I pray this for our good and for your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So a quick word of context here before we dive in. I'm just going to read it straight from my MacArthur study Bible for you. It says, Philemon had been saved under Paul's ministry, probably in Ephesus, several years earlier. Wealthy enough to have a large house, verse 2. Philemon also owned at least one slave, a man named Onesimus. Onesimus was not a believer at the time. He stole some money, verse 18, from Philemon and ran away to Rome to hide. Through circumstances not recorded in Scripture, Onesimus met Paul in Rome and became a Christian. The apostle quickly grew to love the runaway slave, verse 12, and longed to keep Onesimus with him in Rome, verse 13, where he was providing a valuable service to Paul in his imprisonment, verse 11. But by stealing and running away from Philemon, Onesimus uh, now had broken both Roman law and defrauded his master, Paul knew that these issues had to be dealt with, and so he decided to send Onesimus back to Colossae with Tychicus, hard to say, Tychicus, who was returning to Colossae with the epistle to the Colossians. And so Paul wrote both Colossians and Philemon around the same time and sent them with Tychicus and Philemon to Colossae to deliver. Along with Onesimus, Paul sent Philemon this beautiful personal letter urging him to forgive Onesimus and welcome him back to service as a brother in Christ. So that's your context. You've got this guy stuck in prison, Paul, asking, expecting this wealthy, influential, free man, Philemon, to forgive his lying, thieving, worthless slave, Onesimus, and not only that, but to welcome him back now, not as a slave, but as a brother. How is this possible? Because the gospel changes everything. Specifically, it changes seven things. Number one, it changes our identity. Verses one through three, Paul opens the letter. Paul, a prisoner, 
for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pick those apart. Two recurring new identity markers that we see here. 1A, the gospel calls us into a new family. Notice Paul's language. Verse 1, he calls Timothy our brother. Verse 2, Aphia, probably Philemon's wife, uh, is our sister. In verse 3, and most significantly, why are they his brother, his sister now? Because Paul can now call God himself. They can all call God himself our father. New brothers, new sisters, new father that we share. Why? Because you've been adopted into a whole new family as as a believer, as a Christian, haven't you? Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are what? Members of the household of God. John 1.12, to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Are. Praise God. One's identity markers, they have become a huge topic of discussion in our world today, haven't they? We like to label others, even sometimes assume labels for ourselves so we can fit, fit each other in our own little boxes. Man, woman, white, black, straight, gay, rich, poor, conservative, liberal, Majority, minority, oppressor, oppressed. Friends, you need to know this morning that God's word is really clear. There is only one identity marker that matters eternally. There's only one identity marker that God is going to be concerned with when you stand before his judgment seat on your day of reckoning. Are you a child of God or not? That's it. Have you received Christ, believed in his name, and been given the right to become an adopted son or daughter of the living king of the universe? Or are you still a stranger, an alien, estranged from God in the rebellion of your sin? For those of us who are now in Christ, praise God there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, No male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. And when that is your new identity, your new family, it comes, one B, with new privileges. When you belong to a family, you get to enjoy the benefits associated with being a member of said family. And Paul alludes to just a few of them for us here. Verse 1, he identifies himself as Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You say, I'm sorry, I must have misheard you. I thought you just said belonging to God's family came with privileges, but then you said prisoner. That's exactly how Paul describes it all throughout his letters. Romans chapter 8, he says, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. We're heirs of God. We stand ready to, to, to claim an inheritance because we're God's children now, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also also be glorified 
with him. Jesus said, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, why would you think that they would do anything different to you? If you are truly living for me, living as a son, a daughter of the God that they rebel against in their sin. So Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when Jesus' disciples turned apostles are systematically rounded up and beaten, persecuted for their faith, we hear they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. And today we're living through a unique turning point in the history of our own country where holding to Christian values used to place you in the majority. Now we find ourselves in the minority. Speaking of identity markers, even self-identifying as a Christian now places you in the minority. In 1990, 85% of Americans polled checked that box on the survey and said, yeah, I'm a Christian. By 2015, so that's 25 years later, it had dropped to, 20, to 75%. And just four years after that, from 2015 to 2019, it had dropped another 10% to 65% of Americans. And I would be willing to, to guess, haven't seen the statistics yet in 2021, but I'd be willing to bet that just two years since then, now in 2021, it may well have already dropped below 50%. It's more unpopular to be a Christian today than it is popular. So let me ask you this morning, Christian, as it becomes more and more unpopular to be a Christian in this country, will you rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name? Remember, that is your privilege as a child of God, according to Paul. And in Paul's case, it literally landed him in chains, a prisoner for Christ, won't be true of everyone. <clears throat> in Philemon's case, verse 2, it just meant becoming a fellow worker. Here he is, this, this wealthy, established, influential guy, leader, who uh, is used to paying other people to work for him. Paul says, no, 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 now you're a fellow worker. We hear in verse 2, he hosted the entire church in his house. I got to tell you, as much as Polly and I miss being able to host you guys and you know, we usually make a point after entry point to follow up with everyone who goes through the class and invite them over, take you out for lunch after church, something to, to connect. You know, we used to, on top of that, we were hosting Life Group in our house every week as well. I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to convince my wife to move Life Group back again from meeting here at church to our house because you realize when you stop doing it how much work it takes to host the whole church in your house. Philemon is a worker. That's his privilege. He gets to spend all afternoon cleaning the house only to have a dozen kids come over and ruin your basement every week. Archippus is called a fellow soldier in verse 2. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 6, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Paul exhorts us to take up the full armor of God. We're engaged in a war. In America, again, you see the contrast time and again. Kingdom of this world, God's kingdom. In America, the privileged, the fortunate sons, as that great CCR uh, song from the 60s calls them, the, the fortunate privileged sons, they don't, have, they don't have to fight. I asked Kevin this week, 
new brother here at West Hills who, uh, who recently moved here as an army recruiter. What percentage of your new recruits come from, from families in the top 1% economically in this country? And he laughed. I'll give you a hint. It's less than 1%. But in God's kingdom, his children get to fight. We are blessed. We are privileged to be sent to the front lines every single day in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our own homes, fighting for the souls of our own children, of our spouses, some of you. What a privilege that God deems us worthy to fight right alongside him in the most important war that has ever been fought, the battle for people's eternal salvation for their souls. Do you sense a theme here? Prisoner, worker, soldier. Are these privileges? Well, they are, verse 3, when God is your Father and Christ Jesus is your Lord. The Greek word there, by the way, for Lord, kurios, it's the same word Paul used of Philemon in relation to Onesimus, his slave, because it literally means master. Kurios means master. Jesus is your master now. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 6, once you were a slave to sin, now you're a slave to Christ. The reality is you're always serving someone in this life. Are you serving yourself and your flesh and your self-centered, selfish, inherent pride and and, and self-enslavement to sin? Or have you been set free to serve the living God privileges of serving him are endless. It's so good to be a slave of Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is, it is so refreshing, Paul says, to suffer even for him, to serve him, to fight for him, because Jesus is so worth it. He's worth it. He's worth your all. And so the gospel changes our identity, number one. Secondly, it changes our loves, verses four through seven, our loves. You look back with me at those verses. Paul writes, I thank my God because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, Philemon, my brother, because the hearts of all the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, Commentators are going to point out that Paul is employing here an ancient rhetorical strategy known as flattery, adulation, blarney, wheedling, cajolery, buttering up, that Paul's aim in this letter is to persuade Philemon to forgive Onesimus, and so he's building him up, talking him up, so much so that Philemon has no choice but to rise to the occasion, to rise to to Paul's uh, exalted description of him. And you notice, by the way, in verse 2, who does Paul address the letter to? Not only to Philemon, but to Aphia, to Archippus, to the whole church that meets in his house. Why? Because when Philemon opens this letter and reads it out loud on the Sunday morning, that Onesimus delivers it right after Bible study, reads it out loud in front of the whole church. Dear Philemon, I rejoice that you have such love for all the saints, all the saints, hint, hint, 
even the enslaved ones, nudge, nudge, even the enslaved ones who wronged you in the past, who stole from you. Paul is not leaving Philemon with much of a choice other than to forgive Onesimus. It's the same thing I do with y'all every year when VBS rolls around, vacation Bible school, and inevitably, you know, we're a week out, and Allie's still 12 volunteers short. What do I do? I get up here at the pulpit. I say, I thank God always for all of you in my prayers for your love toward all of our children here at West Hills, that I get to pastor the most wonderful church full of folks who would willingly give a whole week's worth of free evenings up to come and love on ungrateful, whiny, germ-infested, COVID-spreading kids. That's what Paul is doing here. Philemon's got no choice but to do the right thing and to forgive Onesimus. But keep in mind, too, though, Paul is not just some manipulative swindler He's an anointed apostle of the Lord. He is being honest here when he reflects on both his love for Philemon and Philemon's love for all the saints, as well as both of their love for the Lord. Those things are all true because those are the two new loves that God gives us. When the gospel changes us from the inside out, God gives us to A, love for him, first and foremost, love for God. Verse 5, Paul praises Philemon's love toward the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, Paul prays that Philemon would grow in his understanding and love for Christ. And then to B, God gives us also love for his people, the people that God loves, we now love. Verse 5, I hear of your love for all the saints, Paul says. Verse 7, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon is, is willingly, sacrificially serving and loving God's people. These are the two great commandments. After all, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is it. This sums it up. This is all. You want to know God's law? It's the law of love. You're supposed to love. But here's the thing. You and I have no shot of doing it, of keeping God's law on our own. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because the only way that you and I can actually obey God's commands, actually do what he's called us to do and love him and others is if God himself supernaturally intervenes and changes us from the inside out and gives us new desires, gives us a new heart, gives us new loves. That's why 1 John 4, 19 says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. God has to change us and cause us by his saving love to respond with love of our own in return for him and for his people. Number three, the gospel changes our influence. You look at verses 8 through 10 and the social dynamics going on here. Verses 8 and 9, Paul claims, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, 
an old man and now a prisoner also. Let's dissect that. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, authority is derived not from power but from love. This is so contrary to everything you and I experience Monday through Saturday out in the world. Out there, it's all about power. Who's got more money? Who's got the, the, the title, the degree following their name? You know, who, who was born first? Who, you know, who's older? You know, that's how authority is derived from power, some form of power, not in God's kingdom. It's from love. And so Paul gives us a couple examples here. He says, I'm an old man. The surrounding society says, we put old people out to pasture. That's why we, we pay for you to go to the nursing home and, and for attendants to listen to your old war stories because your worth in our society is dictated by what you can contribute to society. But Paul says, no, yeah, I'm, I'm an old man. I'll just own it. I'm old. Oh, and by the way, have I mentioned yet I'm in prison also? Second time I'm in, I'm, I'm in prison. How's that for a position of power? as he is writing to this wealthy, influential church leader, Philemon. And yet Paul reminds him, don't forget, I could command you to take Onesimus back. I could pull rank here. Why? Because rank within the kingdom of God is not determined by your age. It's not determined by your bank account. It's not determined by your social standing, status. No, what matters in God's kingdom is your spiritual status, where do you stand with God? And after Jesus himself, Paul was the goat. Just as Jesus, who was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to his power, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and suffered and died for us because God so loved the world, Paul now models that same gospel love for Philemon by saying, listen, I could pull rank, pull a power play here, but for love's sake, I'm just going to ask you, appeal to you to do the right thing, to receive him as a brother. Second, authority is not only derived from love, but it is developed within spiritual relationship. We've seen this already. Uh, but verse 10, here it is again. What is Paul's appeal to Philemon? He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. This is the first time we hear of Onesimus. Paul is 10 verses in. He's finally getting down to business, getting to the point of his letter. But as he does so, he does it once again in the context of the spiritual family. He says, Onesimus has become my son, and so Philemon, if you feel good receiving my own son back now as a mere slave, think of the story of the prodigal son. Father, take me back just as a slave. You're a son. The gospel changes our identities and thus our influence and the ways that we relate to one another. Number four, it changes our usefulness. Verse 11, Paul admits parenthetically, Formerly, I know Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So Paul is making a play on words here uh, because the name Onesimus in Greek means useful. 
Paul acknowledges, listen, I know he used to be useless as a slave. In fact, he was worse than useless. He stole from you. He brought negative value to your household economy. But the gospel changes everything. He's been redeemed. He is now useful indeed, not just to you, but to me. And selfishly, I'd like to keep him here with me in Rome. By the way, quick aside, you'll notice, obviously, there's this underlying social dynamic of slavery all through the book, right? That's the context. I'm not actually going to answer this morning the question, probably, I hope, you know, a lot of you are asking, you know, why doesn't Paul just use this as an opportunity to, like, undermine the entire institution of slavery? Just make it really clear and save, you know, a few a millennia of Christian history of people debating it before the abolition of, of slavery. I'm not actually going to touch on any of that because I don't have time and it's not the point of the letter. Um, but I will, I would love to answer that question if you want to ask it. So we've got a podcast called Ask the Pastor. If you want to write that one in and ask me, I'll answer it for you. But what's the application here for you and me today, friends? Our usefulness. I want to be careful. Pastor, are you saying that people who haven't been saved and changed by the gospel are worthless? No, I didn't say the gospel changes our worth, our value, changes our usefulness. We all have intrinsic worth and value and dignity simply because we've been made in God's image, but why were we made in God's image? Think back to Genesis 1 that we studied together this time last year. God made us to be reflections of his glory, to bring him glory and joy in all that we do. And we already read in Hebrews eleven six that it's impossible to please God without faith. And so, an image bearer who has been created to reflect God's glory to the world like a mirror, but who rejects God in her sin and lives for herself instead, is at best a very broken useless mirror. Not worthless, but useless. But the gospel changes that. It changed Paul from a persecutor of the church who brought negative value to God's kingdom economy into a patriarch of the church who indisputably did more for the sake of Christianity in the world than anyone who has ever lived other than Jesus himself. The gospel changed Onesimus from a lying, worthless, useless thief into a sacrificial servant of Paul in his imprisonment. And the gospel can bring new purpose and new meaning to your life as well this morning. Because, number five, it changes our actions. The gospel changes our actions. Listen, The gospel, this is where the rubber hits the road, the gospel will cause you to do formerly unthinkable things for the sake of Christ. It will. To take action that would be unimaginable and absurd if not for the transformative power of the gospel at work in your life. We see this both in Paul's own example of radical selflessness here as well as Philemon's anticipated selflessness from Paul, the sacrificial love that Paul calls him to here. So let's deal with both of them. Paul first. 
verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Understand here, friends, Roman prisons were not 21st century American prisons. Roman prisoners wouldn't have gotten the COVID vaccine first. They didn't get three meals a day on the taxpayer's dime. In Roman prison, if you didn't have an Onesimus in your family who cared about you enough to bring you dinner every night, you just went hungry. And if you starved to death, well, that just meant an extra cell freed up for the Romans. And so Paul sending Onesimus back to Philemon here is at personal risk to his own life, his own physical safety, not to mention his emotional health. He says there in verse 12, I'm sending you my very heart. I mean, you think about how hopeless and, and, and depressing it would be to be locked up in a dark you know, prison cell. Again, they didn't have people legislating this stuff. I mean, they were badly treated. And Onesimus helps him get through it. He says, I love him. I'm sending you my very heart, my son. Are you starting to see the gospel analogy here? Paul risked his own personal life and safety to send his own son back. If you don't see it, let's just read verses 17 through 19 again. This should make it just, I mean, it just should hit you over the head this morning. Paul says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. When Onesimus shows up with this letter, don't look at him like he's your, your useless slave who stole from you, who's wronged you, who's offended you. Look at him as if I was standing there on your doorstep. That's how you, you, you view him, you receive him. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now, you need to understand, if a slave ran away in those days and was caught, he was branded with a big F for fugitivas, fugitive, right on his forehead. Often he could be killed without a trial at his master's whim and discretion. At the very least here, Philemon should be demanding that Onesimus repay whatever he stole with interest. That's only fair. Paul says, charge that to my account. Friends, do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news that despite your sin, your stubborn rebellion against your good master, who you have wronged, God Almighty, despite your decision as a useless servant to flee from him instead of living for him like you were created to do, 
despite your owing God everything. Paul says here, if Onesimus owes you anything at all, friends, you and I owe God everything at all, our whole hearts, minds, souls, strength, our life, and yet we give so little of that back to him in our sinful self-centeredness. We live for ourselves instead, and in our sin, we have incurred a debt, an eternal debt that you and I could never hope to repay. But gospel changes everything. You have an intercessor, a reconciler, a savior who lived the sinless life that you could not but should have in your place. So he has the line of credit with God the Father to pay off your debt in full. And he now says, Father, if he has wronged you at all, if she has wronged you, if, he, if she has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Father, charge that to my account. I will repay it. And friends, he repaid it in full for you on the cross. Amen. And if you will but repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for your eternal forgiveness of your sins this morning, you will be saved. It's the gospel. And it can change everything in your life. Paul experienced that kind of personal forgiveness from Jesus, and that is what empowered him to do the unthinkable and send Onesimus back at the risk of his own life simply because it was the right thing to do. Philemon had experienced personally this kind of forgiveness from Jesus, and that's why Paul was confident that he would do the very unthinkable thing of forgiving this formerly useless, crooked slave and now receive him. Not only that, but as a brother. So let me ask you this morning, have you experienced that kind of transforming forgiveness in your own life personally? And if you have, what kind of formerly unthinkable, unimaginable actions has the gospel empowered you to take in your life. We had Saul and Rachel Rooker over for dinner last night. I was blessed to be with them. And Saul was telling us about growing up in Afghanistan in the late 90s and the early 2000s because his parents were missionaries there. And how by God's providence, they had returned home to the States just a few months uh, to give birth to Saul's baby sister when the Taliban uh, started rounding up Americans after 9-11. But then do you know what they did right after his sister was born, as soon as they could? They flew back to Afghanistan. War-torn U.S. invaded Afghanistan. Why? Because they knew that millions of Afghans were dying even more after the U.S. invasion, I'm sure, dying every day without knowing Christ, without the hope of eternal life. And they could not stand 
to sit idly by in the comfort and safety of America while these people were dying without Christ. The gospel changes everything. You only take action like that if the gospel changes everything. Maybe Jesus won't call you to go risk your life in Afghanistan. Let's just stick with the theme of Paul's letter here for a minute. Forgiveness. Who has the gospel unthinkably empowered you to forgive in your life, your past? Your cheating ex-husband? Your drug-addicted mom who abandoned you at birth? Stuck you in the foster care system? Your heartless boss who fired you unjustly? Your sexual abuser? gospel has the power to change everything. The power to empower you to do the unthinkable. Forgive even those kinds of people. Number six, it changes our people. It changes our people. I'm running kind of short on time here. We have already talked about our new family. Again, commentators will point out here that Paul is name-dropping for the purpose of pressuring Philemon. You know, he's, he's name-dropping Epaphras, Mark, and Aristarchus, Demas, Luke. By the, way, Ones, uh, by the way, Philemon, they're all watching you. They're all watching to see, now that you've read this letter out loud, are you going to do the right thing and forgive Onesimus? But what if Paul is just genuinely encouraging him to, you know, what if Paul is just genuinely saying, hey, Philemon, we miss you, man. We miss you. I can't wait to get back and, and, and all hang out together again because you're, you're my people. You're my, my brother. You're always in my heart. The gospel calls us into that kind of a loving Christian community with fellow brothers and sisters. What a beautiful gift that God has given us the church, life group, you know, the ability to, to, to do life and to be drawn into that kind of a spiritual, um, encouraging, supportive family. It's beautiful. Finally, number seven, the gospel changes our spirit. Verse 25. Verse 25, Paul says the grace, he ends with the grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. Listen, how do you fundamentally change your entire identity? How do you change your loves, your deepest desires in life? How do you change the way you relate to others in love instead of in power, instead of seeking influence in that way? How do you change your usefulness, your purpose, your meaning in this life? How do you change your actions to do the, the unthinkable in sacrificial love for others? Well, friends, the answer is you don't. You don't. You don't change any of it. The only way any of that happens is if God first changes your spirit, if he first takes out your heart of stone and gives you the gift by grace through faith of a new heart of flesh and a new spirit. So let me end with this. Do we know 
how the story ends. Did Philemon forgive Onesimus? Whatever became of him, do we know? Well, Pastor Kent Hughes notes in his commentary that many believe that Philemon, in deference to Paul's expressed desire to have Onesimus back, did in fact return him to Paul in Rome, where he further developed into a great man of God because 50 years later, when Ignatius, one of the great early Christian martyrs, was being transported from Antioch to Rome to be executed, he wrote letters to certain churches. And in writing to the church of Ephesus, he praises their bishop Onesimus, even making the same Pauline pun on his name. Hughes says, it appears likely that Onesimus, the runaway slave, had become, with the passing of years, the great bishop of Ephesus. Friends, the gospel changes everything. It changes persecutors of Christ into prisoners for Christ. Gladly. It changes wealthy, powerful slave owners into humble, deferential, spiritually obedient disciples of unpowerful people who were stuck in prison. And it changes worthless slaves into bishops and brothers. Even more incredibly, it changes slaves of sin into children of the living God. Have you had your life turned upside down for the better? Everything changed by the power of the gospel. Your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, I ask you. Let's pray.